Shut up and sit down. everyone. Um, tonight we're going to talk about um, um, one of the biggest problems I have in, in fandom is um, when you make a change, a fundamental change to fandom, and then nothing else changes about the canon events that you choose to write about. Uh, it's a real big problem in the Harry Potter fandom. <laughs> Put that out there for you. It's like, what? Come on, What? Anyways, we're going to be talking about that. It's Janet's question. The question is up on the, um, the blog description. Um, but basically, let me give you a little. Uh, let me give you a little. Make that writing bigger because I'm an old lady. Okay. Uh, shit. 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 Okay. You know, I noticed lately that when I cuss, my accent actually gets worse. Did you notice? Anyways, okay. Janet asked. Kira, you talked about how changing one thing must ripple into the future, as in Harry growing up in a loving home changes how he responds to a thing that happens at Hogwarts. How would you do something like that that makes so many ripples, such as Gibbs killing Harry in autopsy before Kate dies, Morrow's still in charge, so that that changes the response in Israel, no Gibbs being Ahab, etc., etc., etc. She also additionally asked, also, you have written Harry Potter's prophecies so many different with so many different meanings and made it work. I wonder if you have a personal opinion about the meaning. And then she asked Jilly a question, and Jilly is on the line and will be joining me tonight um, <coughs> to answer that question. Uh, but okay, so I'm going to talk about the prophecy first and get that out of the way. I actually think the prophecy in Harry Potter in canon is self fulfilling. Um, I think that it only came to pass because Voldemort found out about it and made sure it happened. He was literally the instrument of his own demise from beginning to end since it was his own curse that backfired on him both times. Once because of Lily Potter's sacrifice, and at the end because he wasn't the master of the Elder Wand. So what it boils down to is that um, Voldemort killed himself, <laughs> which makes the prophecy self-fulfilling. It's it's not um, it's not concrete. It's not set in stone. This is not something that that had to come to pass. He made it come to pass. He, but then you know, when you're a fan fiction writer, you can play with it and do different things with it and make it work for you, um, or you can tear it apart. It really just it really depends on what you want to do with it. And really, I approach um, fan fiction um, in the manner that canon is fluid. Because if you're just going to rehash canon over and over and over again, I don't see a point. And since no writer but J.K. Rowling and the people she allows to work on various movie scripts and plays can produce canon, 
I can't produce canon. You can't produce canon. Um, so stop trying. Unless J.K. Rowling calls your house and says, hey, how would you like to write a sequel to Harry Potter? And if that happens, I expect you to get on the internet and tell everybody. But until it does, you cannot write canon. You are incapable of writing canon. So stop putting it on your fucking fix. Don't say it's canon because it's not. You can say it's canon compliant, but even then it's really not. Because you are literally incapable of writing canon. Okay, so that's that's that. But really for me, like I said, I, th- I think... Basically, um, as far as the canon um, goes with the with the prophecy, that it's self-fulfilling. But I also consider it a very fluid element that I can play with, um, as I as I wish to. But for me, canon has always been kind of like a rough guideline. Because <laughs> what's the point? What's the point of um, regurgitating canon events over and over again? That's really super fucking boring. If I want to read canon, I'll go read the books. I've got all seven in a really nice hug. Um, hardcover set. I also have them all in an ebook form. I don't need you to tell me your version of the same events in canon. I really don't. But some people like that shit. I don't know why. Regardless. I'm going to get Jillian on the line because we're going to talk about NCIS and Gibbs killing um, Aerie in autopsy. It has um, it has resonance with um, Jillie because she's actually um, writing this. So I'm going to get her on the air. There's a lot of phone numbers. There you go. It's there me. you go. It's you. She's been gone it's forever. It's been so long. I am. <laughs> I had the holiday invasion. At one point, we had eight people in the two bedrooms. It's just too much. <laughs> that is way too much family burden. It's like, I, no. <laughs> I, I would hide in my car to get some privacy. <laughs> oh, God. For, you know, for someone, like, you know, I have my own office space in my house. And when I'm riding, my my husband doesn't bother me. He um, he, um, he doesn't get in it. You know, he he, um, he doesn't. So I can't imagine being in a two-bedroom apartment. Because me and my husband, we share, we have a fairly large house. I <laughs> think about 2,700 square feet across three levels. Is that ridiculous? There's just it's two of ridiculous. us. It's ridiculous. It's spacious. <laughs> it's spacious. You've got plenty of room to be by yourself. I mean, when it's just my sister and I here, we don't really have an issue because her office and bedroom is on the opposite side of the apartment for me. It's like we only have to, like, risk bumping into each other in the kitchen. But when there's people, like, in every room, I mean, I, I couldn't even get people let me leave me alone and let me work. I'd be like, okay, I, I, I'd be like, all right, just don't talk to me. I mean, at one point, I'm sitting, I'm sitting on my bed at one point over the holidays, editing something and I had my my middle sister laying across the foot of the bed and my mother laying on the other side of the bed talking to each other while I'm working and that was because it was less crowded in here (laughs) wow well I would say that my house is that for my area it's actually um fairly cheap if my house was sitting in the middle of San Francisco it would be what 750 million dollars 
but uh, because that, of where I live in San Francisco, no, I'd say more like a million and a half to two. Really? Well, see, in Easily. my area, it's less than two hundred. I have, I, I, have a, I have a friend who paid um, three quarters of a million for a eight hundred square foot condo in San Francisco. I have a friend who lives in Los Angeles who paid um, about that much for 1,100 square feet. That's sad. I'm like, what? <laughs> it was a bungalow. I was like, holy shit, you need to move. <laughs> plus utilities, $1,500 a month for a 1,000 square feet apartment plus utilities. You should be getting cable, at least. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the average rent in my area, um, I'm outside of a, of a large city, so I'm not in the city. I'm outside. Um, the average apartment rent is um, between 700 and 900 for a two-bedroom. You get three or four-bedroom, you know, multi-level, you get $1,500. You, you know what I mean? So... But there's a house in my neighborhood that is renting for six fifty. And it is as I it is as big so as mine. Hard. And it, and well, it that, is that's... as big as mine, and it's renting for about six fifty. And that's that's one of the reasons why I left where I was in California was because when we had to move, um, the place that we had the place that had availability like two blocks from me, there are two bedrooms for fifty four hundred a month. And I was just like, and the average for a two-bedroom in our neighborhood was $3,800. i am like, I can't do this. i got to go somewhere else. $5,400 a month for something you're not even trying to buy. Right. And I was like, now, if you spend $4,400 a month, why aren't you buying a house? Interestingly enough, um, I was on Facebook uh, on my phone, and they have this thing, you know, like local sales and stuff. And in my local sales tab, they also have houses and apartments for rent. You know, they they, they advertise them there. And I saw a uh, a loft apartment with a full bath, a full kitchen, washer and dryer, um, one bedroom, and it was like two hundred dollars a month. I was like, well, shit. <laughs> That's a pretty good deal. <laughs> That's just uh, okay. It's craziness. It's craziness. It is crazy. Um, but then you know, if, if if you get into um the city where I live, you know the the outskirts of the look the, the the prices increase exponentially. Yeah, you know. Yeah, it's terrible. Big city living is not for the is not for the faint of heart because it's expensive. All right, what was I supposed to say? I was supposed to say words. Wasn't I supposed to say words? I can say the words. It's and- at the very bottom. This is Julie. How the heck do you pronounce? It's one of the last sentences. It's the last sentence before things. Oh right, right, right. So wyvern is just the type of dragon. I didn't make that word up. So that's just that. Um, so the, the W I V R N is wyvern. Wyvern? Wyvern. 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 I've heard it pronounced Wyvern, but I, I'm pretty certain it's actually Wyvern. 
Um, the other word is completely made up. I completely made it up. So uh, kind of probably how people have been pronouncing it in their head. It's probably not necessary to change your head canon, but my pronunciation is um, Avaria. Avaria. The, the, the ascended beings were called Avarians, and they came from Avaria. I had to think about that. I was like, because I actually had to write my own pronunciation down since I was making words up. <laughs> when you make shit up. And we can tell Janet that's about 13 minutes into the podcast. <laughs> well, since this whole question is for Janet, hopefully she'll be tuning in for the whole thing. Hopefully she'll listen to this whole thing. Yeah. So hopefully it'll be all be relevant to her interests. <laughs> I just quoted myself. <laughs> I, I, it, came, it came out of my mouth, and I was like, oh, that, yeah. Because <laughs> I was, actually, my mom is, um, um, I'm, I'm having to take my mom to some appointments for um, a medical issue. And um, I've been reading um, stuff. I've been reading, I've been sw- switching between my own fic and a couple of things that I've downloaded. I recently read The, the Riven Crown, which I highly recommend. Um, I got it off AO3. It's a Hobbit fic. Excellent. Uh, let's see. And I've been reading my own work, and I recently read um, Tangled Destinies. That's a good read choice. I know. <laughs> I, mean, I sit down with that one a couple times a year. It's on my um, – I can't have it bookmarked in my favorite fix list so that I don't okay. have to the ribbon. the pain. Thank you. I, pain I, of browsing. I appreciate it. The Riven Crown is by the Kingmaker. Uh, I put a link in um, the uh, the chat room, and but it will be really easy to find if you have to Google it. Um, I put in the the Riven Crown, and it popped right up. It was the first result. R I V E N Crown um, by the Kingmaker. Uh, excellent story, just excellent. I really, I was, I was riveted the whole time. I keep leaving, I keep trying to leave kudos on it. And um, it tells me I already left kudos. I know, AO3, I want to leave more. <laughs> Why won't you let me? Leave a, a kudo a chapter. <laughs> the only me. thing worse than not being able to leave multi-kudos on each chapter, like a, a kudo on each chapter, is they won't let you take it back. <laughs> That's true. I need to unkudo button sometimes. Not often, but sometimes. <laughs> I uncudo I uncudo <laughs> you. Because <laughs> sometimes, damn, I, I I get a surprise. Or worse is when you don't even mean to do it, and you're trying to scroll, and you accidentally do it. And, it, and if you're logged in, it leaves your name on it. And you're like, I didn't want to do that. That was not my intention. <laughs> <laughs> I did that once on a story that had had like um, something in it that I find like really offensive. Um, it was massive, like massive underage, like I don't know, under ten. And um, I didn't realize that's what because the story didn't warn for it, and so it became pretty clear that that's what was going on fairly early. And I'm, I'm I was on my tablet flailing to get out of that story, and I hit kudos instead, and I went, oh my god. I'd have, I'd have been like um, cutting them. Um, the management at AO3 demanding they remove it, and if they didn't, I'd be demanding they delete my account. <laughs> <laughs> I unkudo you. <laughs> Just delete my whole account. I can't be kudoing 
pedophilia. What the fuck? <sighs> I actually, I actually had a whole like epic tantrum about that. I was like, I can't believe I can. I watched, I was like, the rudest thing I could do at this point, but I really wanted to, was to leave a comment that I totally didn't mean to kudos story. <laughs> it's <just> so offensive. <laughs> and how dare you not warn for this content? But I just, I was like, I'm just gonna be sad. <laughs> I'll just have to be sad. But that could be actually, we joke about the unkudo button, but that could be actually a really traumatic thing for an author is like they put out a chapter and like 500 of their kudos go away and they're like, what'd they do? (laughs) That would be letting them know that they fucked up, that they made a mistake. (laughs) You screwed up. Where'd my kudos go? My kudos are We hate this change. We hate direction. We hate what you're doing. Um, But I, you know, honestly, on that particular subject, I, um, as a writer, I'm going to talk to other writers, writer to writer. If you have a plan for your story and you've got your plot down and, and you know where you're going and, you, and you're posting as you write, which I don't honestly recommend, but if you do it, outside rough trade, I don't recommend it. I really don't because people get really... The assholery is doubled when you're publishing a work in progress mm-hmm. versus a completed product. Um, but if you already have your plan down, don't let somebody's disappointment in your plot points change your mind. That's your shit, not theirs, and they don't get. Don't don't give them a window, Wendy. Don't open up a window and invite them into your house. It's it's just not good for you. It's really, really not good for you to let your readers dictate where you're going. It's not good for your process. It's not healthy for your mental um, landscape. It's just, it's really not healthy. And it's hard, actually, it's, it's hard not to be influenced, even if, even yeah. if it's one of the it's one of the dangers of writing, it's one thing to put, have it done and posting it, drawn out in some fashion. But if you're mm-hmm. actually writing as you post, like you post write a chapter and you throw it up the same day or whatever, um, it, it can actually even if you're really determined to stick to it, sometimes the little subtle like sometimes passive aggressive comments can really get in your head, even if you wouldn't change what you're doing. And um, like somebody, um, I was thinking of mine that they kind of. They left me a comment after that. They'd like left positive comments. And this is a finished story, but they had left me positive comments for like five or six chapters. And then they discovered that the story wasn't a fuzzy relationship story and that it was actually kind of angsty and, and actually had a lot of political overtones. And they were like, oh, I'm really kind of disappointed. Um, which I didn't care. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, that didn't okay. bother me at all. But that's the kind of thing that. Uh, sometimes people are reading along in your story and they're waiting to see where it goes. A lot, because you know, it's like, what is it, like 90% of our comments are on the last chapter. And a lot of people are waiting to see where you go and how the story comes out before they leave a comment. It's just the way readers work. And so if you're more likely to be getting those critical voices while you're writing in the middle, pay attention to them and they really throw your pro they can throw your process off a lot when somebody when you know you're planning the story and like one of the few people who's been commenting on your story 
is disappointed with the direction, it can be really demoralizing. Which is why I'm super, super militant about the content of your comments on Rough Trade and on Wild Hair. Because um, it's not your job to intrude on another writer's process. And that's very easy to do when you're commenting. Yeah. Even if you don't mean it. I've had people say things that they thought were perfectly nice um, that to them were perfectly nice. That were just kind of like, wow, you know, what if you don't, I could tell they really didn't see what was wrong with the comment, that how it was so um, um, backhanded. It was backhandedly insulting, even though it, they thought probably thought they were complimenting me. And it's, it's, it can be, if, if you, that's happening on something that you're in the middle of, you, even, if, even if you don't listen to those voices, it, it's, it's impossible to not have heard it. You can't just unhear it. You can't just unsee it. And um, it does affect you. And maybe it only affects you for a few hours, but a lot of people really struggle to scrape out a couple hours of writing time. So if a comment threw you off your writing for a couple of hours, that might have been your couple of hours for that week. Right. So it's just, you know, it can really, I mean, I, I, some, I, I kind of am both a little bit like, I, I like really want to caution people who post whips. It's like, don't. But, you know, on the other hand, you have to be made of stern stuff to post whips, you know. Um, and most people I know who do post works in progress, they do get derailed on a fairly regular basis. Um, just from a demoralizing comment. And it's not like they stopped writing or they changed their plan or whatever. It just throws them off. And if that's all it does, that's more than enough. That's too much. There was some comments about how I coddle writers on Rough Trade and on Wild Hair um, and how I'm turning writers into snowflakes. And so I wrote back to this person and I said, you know what's funny about this? Is that you were literally the only one complaining. So if anybody is a snowflake, it's you. Mm-hmm. And she wrote back and told me I was being, what she used, facetious maybe? I don't remember. And I said, you know, here's the thing. Um, I realize your only contribution to fandom is your comments. But that's it. <laughs> I don't give a shit what you have to say. But I think people who are overly invested in their ability to give their opinion to other writers, it's because that's all they have to give fandom. And they are genuinely a pretty negative person. All they have to give to fandom is a negative, ugly attitude. Mm-hmm. And fuck that shit. Well, I had somebody somebody who had left me some comment, like sent me an email through my website, and kind of they were talking about my attitude. Um, <laughs> did they accuse me of corrupting you? Because I've gotten that a couple of times. Not you specifically, but mostly Lady Holder. <laughs> They alluded to the fact that 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 it was that you know writers like me 
um, who've been influenced by some other, I think they said something like prominent voices or something like that, which I just assumed meant you, but whatever. Um, That's actually better than big name fan. I appreciate prominent voice. I'm going to put it on my bio. (laughs) So because authors like me who had allowed themselves to be influenced by prominent voices or something like that, that um, had had developed, who were were coming across as having big egos and having a bad attitude, and no one would want to read my works um, because of that. And I just you know, I kind of How actually responded. How many pictures did I have last week? <laughs> <laughs> right. And I think, you know, actually, I try really hard to be polite to people unless they are coming on my site and being assholes. So I don't really actually know what you're talking about. But um, if someone's, if an author's ego, I'm not talking about rampant assholery and authors going out and abusing their fans, but if an author having an ego or feeling confident in their work is a sin and it's going to turn a reader off, well, then they don't need to read because fuck that. Um, no one gets to tell me that I don't get to be proud of what I write. No one gets to tell me that. And the thing is, and it really comes down to issues over me setting boundaries. It's not about anything I've said or done. It's about me setting boundaries and saying what I won't tolerate from readers. And that apparently makes me an asshole. And therefore, I and I have a big ego because I've tried to tell readers what they're, you know, how they're expected to behave on my website. And because I've set those boundaries, apparently that is a sign of a giant overinflated ego, and therefore no one will want to read me. And I'm like, I don't think that's really true. Otherwise, like, no one would go to movies anymore. Um, people would stop <laughs> buying books from big-name authors. I mean, these people all have enormous egos. So um, it's just it's just like the, the conclusions that people, they try to, and it's not even, it's like they're trying to pick out something that you're going to, um, be swayed by, which is people won't read your story, and use it to get you to change your behavior and allow them to act entitled. And it was like, um, this is kind of like the definition of gaslighting. gaslighting. Right? Yeah. Gaslighting. I'm going to tell you some truth here. There's probably, you have, you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody else in fandom who is as vocally arrogant as I am about um, just my position in fandom and my writing and my right to have a space online that is mine that I don't have to answer to people, all these things they're accusing you of. Um, It is February 9th, and I've already had 73,000 hits to my website. I had 283,000 hits to my website last month. I have to say that my attitude problem isn't hurting my stats. <laughs> and if my attitude problem isn't hurting my stats, then I think anybody has to worry about that. Let me break it down by year. See if I can figure out the year. Let's see. So I used to have a little year thing here. Where's my little year thing go? I don't need my posting activity. Average per day. Where's my average per year? Am I going to have to do fucking math? I don't want to do fucking math. Okay, my my overall views since my site began is 11 million and a half. 11.5 million visits to my site since I started it. My attitude has been there from the very beginning. 
it's not been a problem. She popped out like this, folks. She popped out like this. <laughs> I woke up like this. <laughs> okay, here we go. I found the years. Hold on. Hold on. Because I haven't... Um, I haven't looked at last year's stats yet. So, uh, last year I had... Um, Two million eight hundred and eighty-three thousand eight hundred ninety-nine views on my website, and that's not me humble bragging. That is me telling you that your attitude is in no way, as long as you're not a cruel asshole, and I don't think I am a cruel asshole. I try to be honest, um, and I don't take anybody's shit, and that isn't the same thing as being cruel. You don't have to set yourself on fire to keep somebody else warm. And you don't have to be nice to somebody just because they exist. And you don't have to bend over backwards to make somebody happy or offer downloads when you don't want to or finish a story when you're not ready or post something that's whatever. You don't mm-hmm. have to kowtow to your readers to get readers is, is what I'm getting at. So this bullshit that she got gaslighted with is complete and total shit because if that prominent voice she's talking about is me – um, my attitude doesn't get in the way of my readers. No. Well, and my Obviously. attitude doesn't get in the way of my readers either. I, th- th- this is what people do is they come onto my website and they act rude. And that's the only time I'm snippy or bitchy with people is when they come on and they leave obnoxious comments. And then I say something, maybe. Sometimes I just delete them, but sometimes I say something. It depends on what mood I'm in. And they like to turn that around as if I'm the obnoxious author who's abusing my fans when they came into a space that says clearly keep your entitled opinions to yourself and said and started some shit up. And that really is gaslighting is when a reader is obnoxious to you and you call them on it or you say, no, I'm not putting up with your crap. And they turn around and talk about how terrible you are and nobody's going to want to read your stuff because you're turning into your egos too big and people aren't going to want to read stories by people who have obnoxious egos. It's like, what's in the <laughs> message there? Is that you're only going to read stories by people who are humble and insecure? Um, that doesn't make any sense. I, you know, as a woman, as a woman, it is, it has always been difficult to be proud of myself, to take pride in my work, because we're taught not to. At least my generation was. Um, Mm -hmm. And I reached a point in my life, and I was, I forget what I was doing, and um, I was talking to somebody, a, a, a group of girls, and there was a guy in it, and I said, well, you know, I'm great. And then they all laughed. The girls did. We were all having a great time. And he said, you're so arrogant. And I turned and looked at him. I said, so from you. And I just, I I, I said, really? I said, what are you? He said, what? I said, are you confident? Are you ambitious? Are you successful? Are you strong? Are you manly? Do you speak from strength? Or are you just some whiny-ass little bitch who has to take other people down to feel better about yourself? I've never seen a man's mouth literally drop open before. 
Because apparently, in his view, he was allowed to be proud of himself and to think well of himself, but I was arrogant for doing the same thing. Well, that double standard. Well, I am very proud of my work, but I was also taught at a very young age to not speak of my accomplishments, not to to be humble. I was expected to be humble before proud. To be a lady. And a lady doesn't brag. And a lady isn't prideful. And a lady doesn't make a scene. And a lady doesn't make other people uncomfortable. Because I'm not a lady. I'm no fucking lady either. <laughs> but there was a time when I strived to be. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what that's the message for givens. You know, like you said, it's little girls. Is, 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 you know, if somebody gives you a compliment, you have to, you know, it's like, it, it, oh, if no, somebody gives you something specifically about you, like, you like you're pretty, if you, you just demurely say thank you. But, um, you know, things like you did a really good job, you have to kind of be self-effacing and go, oh, well, it was a team effort. And well, sometimes it's not a team effort. Sometimes you did all the fucking work. So, um, you know, I got actually, I, I did, I, I got that at work once. It was something kind of like that where um, I had done like 95% of the work on something. And so when, my boss's boss said something about what a good job I had done. I said, thank you. And my boss was kind of a dick. And he said something along the line of, oh, well, we've got a big team working on this. And I just kind of looked at it because I just said, thanks. I didn't try to be self-effacing about it because I was the one who was pulling 16 hour days to get to pull this thing off. And right. um, it was actually, it was actually one of my other, I didn't, I wasn't going to say anything when my boss kind of contradicted that kind of contradicted my just thanks kind of thing to my boss's boss. One of the team members that, Oh no, she she kind of pulled this one out almost on her own. So you know we're really all appreciative that she handled this, so we didn't have to worry about it. <laughs> I just said, and again, I just said thank you. That's a under the table fist bump right there. <laughs> but you know, so yeah. I, I wonder if male authors would get the same kind of, or perceived as male authors, would get the same kind of grief from. Um, their readers like that, like if you that or would even dream of a reader would even dream of saying. That, I'm sure they would get criticisms and flames and all that kind of shit. Or if a reader would even dream of saying to a male author, you know, if you're if you're an egomaniac, people aren't going to read your stuff. I, you know, I don't know because there was that whole thing about uh, George R. R. Martin's readers trying to dictate to him um, the fact that he wasn't. He was out, like, just doing whatever he wanted to instead of being home writing. And they were getting all bits, you know, complaining about it. And that one author had to come out and tell them that George R.R. R. Martin was not, in fact, their bitch. Right. <laughs> that's the bitching. The question is, would they, they – but, you know, George R.R. R. Martin does have a healthy ego. And nobody has yeah. ever said to him, we're, we're just reading you over your You're ego. You're so arrogant. You're so arrogant. It's like, hey, if you want to stop reading this series in the middle because you think my ego is too big – you're not hurting me. Suck a dick. <laughs> you know, J.K. Rowling be on be on Twitter telling people, "Okay, go ahead. You know, burn burn your books. I already got your money." <laughs> I don't care what you do. Go ahead. I don't give a shit. I already got your money. 
But that that you know, here's the thing about this that on the on this person who is um poking at you for um defending yourself and for taking care of you and um being on being on point with your work is they are there's some jealousy there. You know, you know, you know, okay. So like if I'm out I see a woman who's got her game on. She's she's looking banging. I'm like, bitch. <laughs> I don't say it, but I think it. Look at this bitch. <laughs> she looks great. She looks so great. And every once in a while, I come across a woman who looks so damn great. I have to tell her, girl, you look awesome. <laughs> Go you. <laughs> I am loving everything you got going on right here. But as girls, we can say that to each other because. It isn't creepy like when a man does it. <laughs> that, that's so well, terrible, we're not, right? It's right well, it's true. If we're not, if women do it, we're trying to prop each other up. We're saying, hey, you look banging today. Nice work. As opposed to when a guy says it, it's, hey, you look banging today. Can I fuck you? It's right? Not really, it's not really the same thing. Because they're advertising their dick. We're just saying you look great. <laughs> and there is a big difference. But I somebody recommend, I recommended a story. I don't remember who it was by, but I recommended a story to somebody who's looking for rec ones and stuff. I recommended a story that met their criteria. And somebody else said, Oh, yeah, I don't read this author because it was something about their ego. And I just <laughs> responded like, So? None of that comes across in the story. <laughs> the story was awesome. But you know, I'd be why I'd be like, there? Why do you think she has an ego problem? Because it was obviously gonna be a female writer. Why does she have an ego problem? Right, and what's worse is when you and, and you know since fandom is ninety five percent women, especially when it comes to like fan fiction writing, not the, not the overall cosplay go to conventions fandom, but our little section of fandom. Um, why do you feel compelled as a woman to tear down another woman because she's proud, because she's because because she takes pride in her work, because she um, defends herself, because she doesn't take your shit? Why is why do you feel the need to do that? We're totally off subject. <laughs> we are, but it's okay. <laughs> <clears throat> Sorry, Janet. We'll get there. I want to tell you a truth, Janet. Janet, every time I see your name, whether it's your name or not, whether it's somebody else with your name, I automatically in the back of my head, damn it, Janet. <laughs> every time. Every time. It comes up. And, you know, it's not personal. I'm not saying damn it to you. And Janet, if, if if you don't get that, you're probably under like underage and shouldn't be on my site. <laughs> but no, I I do think that um, a lot of times that women are you know we're our own worst enemy. You know, we we don't op- instead of offering support and care to each other. We're tearing each other to pieces, and it's just so ugly. Well, and we also take it, women take it super um, far. Well, yeah, but when, when like, if, if you, if, if a woman, if you, I've seen this in comments, like, um, they offer an, a female author plot suggestions, and she responds with, I don't take plot suggestions from my readers. And her readers react like she's committed some grave offense 
because she didn't pander to them like she was supposed to. And there was nothing I don't polite about I don't readers to just. I mean, she didn't tell this person off. She just said, I don't take plot suggestions from my readers. Simple, straightforward, no explanation, no must, no fuss. I don't take plot suggestions from readers. And there was, like, all this big rant about how rude she was. I was like, That's uh, not rude. Okay. They need to, like, meet no, me. No, it's not. That really is not rude. Um, and, but people just, I think people have an expectation of even, women have an expectation of where women should behave. Maybe not all women, but many women have, especially in fandom, have an expectation of where you're supposed to behave based upon their perceptions of femininity. And it, they just, and in this day and age, that is a, because somebody has a thought or a feeling, it is a reason to just vent all over everybody. I'm just going to moat everywhere. And no one has to think about what they're doing. When I was in college, I encountered, um, a fairly attractive young man. He's very, you know, he's very good looking. He had a great body, um, very classic looks. Uh, and um, he said one of the most difficult things that he encounters with women is they're not being, they're not used to being told no, especially attractive women. He said really attractive women aren't used to being told no. So when you tell them no, they don't respond well. I was like, are you serious? <laughs> he goes, it's not like a guy. You know, you, you, you tell a guy, no, you might get hit in the face. But when you tell a woman, no, they act like, what? <laughs> and it, I think it boils down to the fact that a lot of women are incapable of saying no without offending somebody. So they say yes. Yes, you can borrow my car. Yes, you can have $20. Yes, I'll go to the post office for you. Yes, I'll pick this up at the grocery store. Yes, I'll dance with you. Yes, I'll take that drink. You know, because we know that telling a man no sometimes ends in violence. So we get used mm-hmm. to saying yes, 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 yes. And when you're really attractive, when, when you're an attractive woman, you get told yes, 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 yes. <laughs> you know? Even when a lot of times you should not be told <laughs> yes, you get told yes. You know, men men cater to you in um in, in various situations. Um you like when I was younger, I I anybody who knows me knows that one thing I absolutely loathe to do is pump my own gas. When I was younger and unmarried, it wouldn't be anything for me to get out the gas station, put my hands on my hips and stare at the pump and Inevitably, within about 45 seconds, a man would come along and pump my gas for me. Honey, do you need help with that? Yes, I do. Thank you. (laughs) Flick hair. (laughs) What? I would get my gas pumped and a phone number. I used to keep a little cup in my console in my car, and it was full of men's phone numbers. And every single one of those motherfuckers had pumped my gas. And I don't mean that as a euphemism. <laughs> and I had a car that sometimes would be low on oil, so I would have to put oil in it sometimes. And I would pop that hood up, and I would kind of tilt my hips out a little bit and put my hands on my butt, you know, on the top, and look into it. Man, it wouldn't, 
it wouldn't take anything. If if it wasn't the clerk in the store coming out to help me, it was the man pumping gas at the next um, pump. Honey, do you need help? Yeah, my daddy says I need to check my oil, but and then I had to put oil in it if it's a little low. Let me do that for you. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> it would be nothing. Beyond that, yeah, you I can actually talk. can change my own oil. My, my daddy taught me. Now, saying I can do it and saying I will do it are entirely different situations. That's right. <laughs> There's no disguise. This southern lady right here, there was no disguise. And, and, and there never really had to be. Even now that I'm a little older, um, I'm short. I'm, I'm, I'm a petite woman, and I, I have a really soft little girl voice you might have noticed. Um, <laughs> men help me in grocery stores. Men help me carry my groceries out if, I'm, if I let them. If I'm at the back of my car and I've got a load of stuff in, in, my, in my cart, if the dog food is on the bottom of the thing and there's a man within 50 feet of me, oh, honey, I'll get that for you. Hold on. Jogs over, puts my dog food in my SUV for me. <laughs> so I know what he was oh, talking so t- about. There's, there's a certain breed of woman in most situations that is used to having somebody do for her um, and isn't, doesn't get told off, told no often. And I think a lot of women, um, while we do live in a world where we uh, have to guard ourselves and be, be considerate of our environment because there are a lot of men out there take advantage of you, hurt you and kill you given the opportunity. And I say a lot and I mean a lot. And if you think that's offensive, you need to look up violent statistics against women in your country. Because it's a global epidemic. It is an issue. Um, There are a lot of women in fandom who just work under the assumption that what they want, they can have. Yeah. I want to say And I've answered all through that. So so, so I hope I'm making sense when I say that. No, because it, 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 they translate that that yes, yes, yes they've gotten in life, um, mostly from men to other women. Like you know, and they, they and it, it doesn't work. And being you told no is stories. a thing. If one more person asks me why I won't offer ebooks, I'm gonna cuss them out. I said no. I don't owe you a fucking excuse. Now, the third largest cause of death in, for women in the United States is violence um, perpetrated by a man. Usually a man they know. What kills women on this planet? Childbirth, AIDS, heart disease, and men. <clears throat> Just saying. Just saying. Holder, I'm going to say this. If you wanted me to make you an ebook of any single thing on my website, I totally would. <laughs> because it's you. And you work your ass off on my behalf. I, you know, because people fuss sometimes about um, my relationship with um, certain people. Um, 
Um, and the fact of the matter is, is that um, when you have someone who has beta for you for 10 years, if they want a fucking EPUB of Tango Destinies, it'll be in their email box tomorrow. <laughs> it'll be in their inbox. Come on now. It's been 10 years. Lady Horror has been my beta, and I have been hers for 10 years. If she wants a fucking PDF of my whole website, she, she, she'll have one. And so she's different than the rest of you, and that's just the way it's going to be. <laughs> you have to just accept that and move on. <laughs> but, you know, a lot of times people get uh, get bent um, about... Uh, <clears throat> that particular relationship. Um and it's really funny. It's really interesting that, you know, that they uh um <clears throat> almost, somebody emailed me something and asked me a question. And she has some snide comment at the very end that was like, and some of us can't call you at home. Oh, come on. Like bitch, do you want my phone number? You can't have it, no. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> like you're not allowed to have a friend. What the fuck? Yeah. I'm like, what? Really? You know, yeah, because honestly, Lady Holder has my phone number because I had a come apart um, around the middle of the year, too. <laughs> and went offline for a month and people lost their minds. <laughs> I got like 400 emails that I just deleted. <laughs> I was like, fuck it, I can't handle this. Delete. <laughs> my Bummer. my live journal inbox was so packed, it kept timing out. <laughs> it was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. It was like a whole month and a half. I was just like, fuck it. And I crawled into bed. It happens. So she's over there trying to trying to find me, and people find her. <laughs> Gonna hire a private detective. <laughs> but there's a difference. There there is a difference, and um, I'm not going to to cater to anybody's sensibilities on that and um, pretend there isn't a difference. And it's just, don't be an asshole. So, Jilly, would yeah. you like to answer some of Janet's questions? <laughs> I'd like to answer some jazz questions, sure. Okay, so, so what she's talking about is Gibbs killing Arian autopsy, and yeah, and how I think she's looking into like how would that ripple out, or, or you know how would that because one of the things we've talked about extensively is that when you make a change, it has something has to happen, and so um, I considered a lot of the events of canon, and when I because I I'm doing this. I put this scenario into the sequel to Vicious, which is called Heathen. And I actually started it right after I wrote Vicious. Um, and because I'm talking about the show today, for EAD, I will put up something on Heathen so people can um, see what I'm talking about. So in a few days, you'll have something to reference back for this podcast, Janet. Um, and the scenario was that Gibbs, now Gibbs is a sentinel in that story. So um, I felt like 
his territorial kind of imperative would be and protect the tribe imperative would be very strong and that he wasn't going to play games with Aerie and he killed him the minute he had the chance. Um, and so I had to consider what, what would be the fallout of that. And um, so one of the things Janet mentions is that um, Morrow is still, would still be at that point in time, Morrow would still have been the director um, so there wouldn't be the whole interference response from Israel. Um, so you wouldn't have um, Gibbs going, at, you know, Captain Ahab. You wouldn't have Ziva, Ziva running loose and all that kind of thing. Um, and I considered all that. And some some events you can kind of separate from Gibbs killing Ari, and some events are very tied to Gibbs killing Ari. So, for instance, Tom Morrow leaving NCIS, to the way it looked in canon, had nothing to do with the events of of what was going on with Ari, because if it did, he wouldn't have left what he did. He left right in the middle of that. And, and a transfer of directorship does not happen quickly. So him leaving had nothing to do with um, those events. So Tom Morrow was going to leave anyway at the end of season two. Um, and Jenny, Jenny Shepard would have already been chosen as his successor, because like I said, in federal agencies, they don't just pull somebody out of a hat overnight. Um, they carefully consider There's a vetting process. Yeah, it goes on for quite a while while they determine who they're going to put in a position when somebody like Tom Morrow um, transfers into another agency. So Jim Shepard was going to be coming on board no matter what. And if you buy the idea presented in canon that, you know, she brought Diva with her as a favor, and how you interpret that favor is very it was poorly explained in canon. I mean, in canon, it kind of was like that they had developed a bond um, working together in the Middle East. And, um, whoa, what did that say? Um, red on red is a bad text choice. <laughs> um, anyway, um, I've often interpreted it as a little bit more nefarious. Um, my spin on that is that, you know, um, she does it as a favor to Mossad, not to Ziva. Uh, because Mossad feeds her intel. I've written that a few times, and she basically lets Ziva um, write, send, send, the, send the intel back the other direction in exchange for getting um, intel about uh, Rene Benoit. So you have to kind of do an interpretation of what Jenny's motive is. If she's just friends with Ziva and trying to give her a shot, she's still going to bring her to the U.S. If you have a more nefarious reason for her in engagement with Mossad, she's still going to bring Ziva to the U.S. And she's probably still going to try to shove Ziva onto Gibbs' team. Um, so what I did is I looked at who – now, in Heathen, um, Tony wasn't on Gibbs' team. So I had a different set of variables to play with because Tony's not a factor. Um, and so I had Stan – Burley still being the um, um, had staying at the SFA that Gibbs hadn't found a replacement for Stan and so Stan had never gone to be an agent afloat because Tony never joined the team so Stan was the one who got infected with the plague and Stan died um, and that it left the vacancy um, on the team for Ziva to fill because I still wanted I still decided to go ahead and put Ziva on the team uh, but because Aerie's dead, the biggest change to canon, of course, is that Kate doesn't die. So, and I considered um, what what Gibbs would have been like if Gibbs, that whole thing with Aerie, changed Gibbs dramatically in canon. 
um, he got a lot more that was Captain Ahab thing. I mean, they made they made some jokes about that, but that was the way Gibbs was behaving. He got really abusive verbally when he didn't think people were taking the hunt for this person he perceived to be a terrorist um, very seriously, and he really would lash out. So if Gibbs doesn't have that 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 trigger that kind of escalated his bastardry. Um, he isn't going to wasn't it likely isn't going to be quite as um, assholeish uh, by the time Jenny Shepard comes around. He's still going to be a, a bastard, but not as bad as he was. Because you've got to figure late season two, early season three, you've got Gibbs who has been fought every step of the way over Aerie. He hates Aerie with a passion. People keep telling him he has to put up with Aerie. Um, he loses an agent who died. Um, basically in protection detail on him, um, that really would have altered him significantly. So there is, there is, you can make the case that Gibbs is going to be a slightly softer version of what we see in season, of what we would have seen in season three or four. Um, and because of that, I felt like that he would have eventually um, given in on having the director asking for a favor to put Ziva on the team. So I felt like Gibbs um, would have given into that. Now, what I did is because uh, Aries dead, Kate lives. That's the big significant change. And Kate, I had Kate being very angry with Gibbs um, in the way I wrote it because she felt like Gibbs acted improperly in shooting Aries. Um, that Gibbs should have tried to talk to him or to negotiate. Um, that he should have let her be a profiler and um, surrendered to kind of given into her judgment on the situation. And so I have her staying on the team, but kind of being near the end of her time with them because Gibbs is kind of over her persistent anger about the situation and he has no regrets about it, but she can't get over being mad and feeling like Gibbs did the wrong thing and that she just fundamentally doesn't trust him because he killed Ari. And I do think that that would be a big deal between Gibbs and Kate because Kate, was really firm in her belief that Aerie wasn't all bad until Aerie started shooting people. So if those events don't happen, Kate was very dogged in canon about her opinions until she was proven wrong. So she wasn't, she's, it's unlikely to me that she would give in on that, um, on her belief that there was another possible outcome than shooting Aerie. Uh, of course, you could do it if you don't want Kate to be have issues with that. Um, you could have the have um, Aerie have shot Gerald and um, taken some of those other actions before Gibbs kills him. So it depends upon exactly when in that episode Gibbs shoots him. Um, but I do think there's a good case to be made for Kate still being on the team, but you could also make a good case for her going because Kate, um, despite having a lot of experience in the secret service, she had, um, she, she came from the protection side of the secret service. She did not come from treasury, which means she had no investigative experience when she came to NCIS. So at the point that the airy stuff came down, she had, she was a probie basically. She had what, like six or seven months of investigative experience. Yeah. So 
Gibbs had her on the team because he thought she had potential, but she didn't really have potential at that point in canon to go anywhere. And she couldn't go back to the Secret Service because of her um, sexual misconduct with um, the president's football carrier. So you had... Kate is in a very difficult position from a realistic perspective, and of course people can hand wave away reality, but from a realistic perspective, she had very little actual investigative experience prior to that point in canon. So she can't just go to another agency. They're not going to take uh, somebody who's got six months to a year of experience and is already jumping ship. Um, Unless Gibbs decides to be nice and let her transfer off the team, she's probably stuck where she is if she wants to stay in law enforcement, at least until she's got some more experience. Because uh, she just can't, there's just not a good path for her in another federal agency um, to leave NCIS so quickly. And her experience at um, the Secret Service doesn't, isn't going to mean anything. So I, that's why I chose to keep Kate on the team, is because she didn't really have a path off the team unless Gibbs decide to cut her loose and send her to someone else, which he, in the story I'm writing, he chose not to do. Um, but some of the events, there are a lot of events that don't change because Gibbs kills Ari. Um, now, Mossad might be nursing a grudge towards him, but they weren't, but that's kind of improbable because they weren't nursing a grudge towards Gibbs when Gibbs did kill Ari. Although by then it was proved that Ari was a, a mole. Um, Asshole. Yeah. And then he was <laughs> he was actually working for Hamas as opposed to being Mossad's mole in Hamas. He was actually in working for Hamas. So um so you could you could kind of Mossad's reaction to what Gibbs did, there'd be some fallout, but you know, when in, when that's one of the risks of being a spy is that when the people you're spying on don't know who you are or that your intentions might be for the greater good, you have a chance of getting killed. And that's just the way it goes. But at that point, so Aaron had already injured somebody, right? He um, he shot Gerald, right? Yeah, I don't remember the exact series of events. I think he shot Gerald early on in the episode. But it could be... So he's already made himself them. an enemy. Right. He's got Gerald, Kate, and Ducky down there. And I, I thought that he um, shot Gerald early, but it could have been a little later in the episode than I'm thinking. But it was just, there's, Barry had proven himself to be a problem, and Gibbs took care of the problem, if that's, if that's in, in that scenario, if Gibbs takes care of the problem. Now, Gibbs not being allowed to take care of the problem sent him on a bad path in canon when they basically hamstring him from being able to deal with and look for Aerie. So he just hunted for Aerie on his own. Um, and then Aerie was kind of untouchable because of he was, because he was, a, he was supposedly a, um, a mole in Hamas and both the U S state department and Mossad were very invested in him staying where he was. So Gibbs had a lot of anger around that. So that all goes away, but there's a lot of events that happen late season one and into season two that don't change because Aerie gets killed like the episode with the plague that is still going to happen um that letter is still going to get sent now it's going to be sent to somebody yeah yeah it it was going to yeah it's going to get delivered to gibbs team so 
who gets the letter is up for, that's what's kind of like up in the air. Who gets the letter? Um, does McGee open it? Does whoever, does, does Tonio still open it? Does, does Kate open it? I mean, um, not, if, if Tony's still on the team, which I, I have a different set of issues because in the story I wrote, I'm writing, not wrote, but the story I'm writing, Tony isn't, wasn't on the team at that point in time. So there is, has to be somebody else there. And I chose to have it stand, catch the plague and not survive it. And there's a certain possibility that whoever, um, there's an 85% chance that whoever opens that letter is going to die. That's, that was the state that, um, I had Cassie Yates replace Stan in, in Heathen. So Cassie is, so at the time that Tony meets the team in Heathen, um, the team is Ziva, Kate, and Cassie. Um, I felt like with that makeup of team members, um, that without, this is, this is, again, me extrapolating what I think would have happened by a major change in canon, which was I felt like without Tony there to buffer things for McGee, that McGee wasn't going to survive his probationary period. So I have written McGee as an analyst who works in cyber crimes and he helps out Gibbs' team, but he's not full-time on the team because he is not a field agent. He didn't make it without Tony being there. Um, and that Kate and Ziva um, and even Stan, because it would have been Stan prior to Ziva, weren't, weren't really a mentoring um, environment for him. And so he just didn't make it as a, as a field agent. And then when Stan died, Cassie comes in. So I was dealing with the ripple effect of both Tony not being on the team and um, um, McGee and, and uh, Gibbs shooting Ari. And so I had to consider all those variables. And then there was the issue of, of without Tony there, did the, did the bomb that blew up in that car, that trap, that that would have happened because Aerie set that trap. So that wasn't even an issue. Um, so, you know, how, how you kind of choose to, to pull at it, because you have to both consider the emotional impact that event had on Gibbs and as well as the ripples in canon. And, um, the ripple isn't necessarily that because Ziva, because Ari died, Ziva doesn't come to NCIS. That actually isn't to me the logical ripple, because Ziva coming to NCIS was a function of Jenny Shepard. The it actually makes Ziva's entry into NCIS less contentious because nobody knows that she's Ari's sister and that she was Ari's handler, and those factors should have been contentious factors when she joined NCIS and Canon. They weren't, but they should, it should have been. Um, although Gibbs was a little bit hostile and so was Tony at first, but they got over it in like an episode. So, yeah, yeah, I don't really consider that. I don't really consider that a problem if they got over it in one episode. Um, but Ziva, Ziva would actually be a better mole. She'd be better at espionage because she'd be coming in with the director with none of that ugly backstory and so she'd be more effective at stealing secrets because nobody's suspicious of her outside of the fact that she's, you know, an operative for a foreign intelligence agency. But Because, hello, that um, happens. Yeah, right? I mean, but that's canon. So if you want to – so you could, you could make the argument that Ziva never comes, but you're going to have to then figure out why. Because the ripple – like I said, the ripple from Ari's death to Ziva 
it doesn't actually that doesn't actually flow well because it's Jenny Shepherd that brought Ziva in, and and that had nothing to do with Aerie. They had known each other way back when, working ops together in the Middle East long before the whole thing went down with Aerie. So Ziva's connection is through Jenny Shepherd. So if you're going to take Ziva out, and if that's the ripple you see, you have to figure out why Jenny Shepherd isn't bringing her over. And maybe for me, my headcanon is always that Aerie killed Kate to make room for Ziva. That's my headcanon. That's my headcanon, too. Yeah, me too. Is almost more on Gibbs and the way he acts, almost more than on a lot of the canon events, other than figuring out who the players are on the team. Um, because that that really was a pivotal moment in canon for Gibbs was his confrontation with Aerie and autopsy. Um, it it dramatically had dramatic impact in everything that happened in season two, and how Gibbs acted, and how he interfaced with his team, and how he drove them, almost driving them into the ground with his obsessive behavior. Um, and that led to Kate's death. It, um, it led to that, that that terrorist attack that they that they managed the planned terrorist attack that they um, stopped at the, the time that Kate died. Um, those events were all would all be dramatically impacted by the fact that Ariel was already dead. Um, and so, when you consider that Gibbs might not be the same um, exactly, he's because that he's that was the, the event that hardened him and made him angrier. Then you have to start looking further out. It's like, well, how would that have rolled out if Gibbs wasn't quite so? Because he picked up bad habits in that season that he just perpetuated, that just stayed with him. And if he didn't pick up those bad habits, would it be a better Gibbs? Would you have some event that he would react negatively to later that would do the same damage? But really, I think it's an issue of Gibbs' character more so than canon events outside of the obvious Kate not dying um, that is something that has to be considered. And um, a lot of how that would roll out depends upon how you interpret Gibbs' character. And in the case of where I was writing it, um, Gibbs' daughter is also alive So um, in that story. So I had some really different factors. So Gibbs is a lot softer and more communicative and I don't mean soft, but he's softer than he is in canon, um, because of the factors of Aerie dying and his daughter living and all of those factors in that series that make Gibbs just behave differently with his team. Uh, I still don't think Gibbs is a good team lead. I, I never thought that. I think Gibbs is actually a terrible team lead. Who He was a good investigator who was thrown into being told to lead a team because he got good results, but he didn't actually – display any evidence that he knew how to be a leader other than through bullying, really. I have so, to think that even his mentor wasn't a good team leader. No, I don't think so either. I think Mike French is <laughs> a monster. Um, yeah. Softening a character um, through um, events is something that I've been thinking about. And um, when I am um, actually working on a Hobbit project that's over 120K right now. And one of the things that I did was the way 
the plot folded out. While Thorin knows that that the Pale Orc is alive, he gets all the way to Erebor. He is not held prisoner by the Elf King. He gets all the way to Erebor. Um, they kill the dragon, and he has um, he is crowned the king um, on Durin's day, and never manages to see the Pale Orc. And so he's had this really smooth kind of path all the way to um, to the Lonely Mountain. Um, and there's this, I think, one of the most interesting things about this particular AU is that because he hasn't had to face his own personal nightmare, He's he's smoother. He's his his temper is even. He's not had to um, suffer the indignity of being a prisoner, uh, and he's not had. It's just it's just changing the events after Rivendell really opened him up as a character for me because I was able to like, okay, this is, you know, this, this is what this is. This is how we're going to do this. He's not had to deal with um, the pale orc. He knows the pale orc is out there. He knows the, these armies are coming, but he is surrounded by support. He's, he's um, been allowed to relax. The curse is not a problem because um, this is a Harry Potter crossover and Harry dealt with that when they got to the mountain. They found um, that the Arkenstone was carrying a curse. It's one of my major plot points. So I'm, not, I'm not going to tell you exactly how it was cursed or who did it. Um, Which is not my head cannon. It's totally my I head know, cannon right? For, it, I was like, yeah, it's totally my head it's, cannon, too. It, it literally, I was like, what? That just makes so much fucking sense. And once I did it, I was done. I was like, okay, that's, that's, that's it. That's it. Um, and uh, I have some other elements coming into that. Um, that this person also did uh, to kind of further cripple um, the dwarf clans to make them less of a threat. And so it's, um, it's just been a really interesting um, take, you know, removing this, this confrontation between him and um, the pale orc really, really allowed his character to relax. Because when you look at the character in the canon, um, He's he's driven. He's he's kind of abrasive. He's he's a real asshole, actually. And when he actually comes face to face with the pale orc, um, all of that history comes back at him. All the you know the battle of Moria, everything comes back to him, and he is um, forced into a situation where he has to run repeatedly, and then he's held hostage um, by this asshole. And it it really demoralizes him as a character, and it makes he he's already in such a weakened state by the time he gets to the mountain. But of course, he has zero ability to to fight off what is coming. He's got no he's got nothing left. There are no reserves left for him. Thorin is at the bottom already when he gets to the mountain. Yeah, he's out of spoons, and there's nothing left. And then he's faced with um, this dragon and um, the curse. And um, just the dragon sickness and the, and the gold madness and everything is just piling on him. But when you remove that first altercation, it changes everything. And it ripples out for him as a character. 
None of them mm-hmm. are as um, harried and worried and 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 weary and and bone tired. You know, tired all the way to your soul by the time they get to the mountain. Um, and you know, it's just it's 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 just it's been really interesting. But there's a problem with the problem becomes when you put a magical person down in the middle of Middle Earth who's been trained to use magic, it's really difficult to let the um, canon events unfold the way they did because it makes zero sense. Right. Because why would a magical person do any of that nonsense? It's like. But I've got a broom. I'm just going to fly over the Nessie Mountains. Fuck you, bitches. Assuming you don't factor <laughs> in other forms of magical transportation. Um, but it's like, why would you put up with that? Even if you ferry people one at a time over the mountains, it would be better than walking through them? It would have been easier, yes. Um, the thing is, is that, you know, you, it's like <clears throat> Harry grew up in the Shire. And he grew up basically um, learning magic. Uh, at Rivendell with resources that have come through the same portal that took him to Middle-earth. And so when he comes back to Middle-earth and he's um, facing his father going on a um, quest to fight a dragon, he's like, what? What? (laughs) What the fuck is this shit? (laughs) I should have to put up with this shit. But all you know, so also there's you know I had to put some limits on him to just give myself room to make events happen. You know, just to make anything happen, I had to give my you know I had to give him limits to his magic and limits to his ability to travel. Like one of the things I I, I felt like I must do was fix it so he could not apparate somewhere he'd never been. Because it's my head canon that magical people can apparate they do the way they do on Earth because pe- because magicals have been doing it for so long they kind of have built magical pathways and created mm-hmm. apparition channels highways basically through the magic and if there's nobody else doing it before him he has no there's no landing zone basically there's no path for him so he has to forge his own path. Every time he apparates to someplace um, new, so what I had him do was build apparition points with his magic, and so he can. By the time he gets to Erebor, he can hop basically over the Misty Mountains using ap- um, apparition, but he couldn't do it before because he'd never been to Erebor. So he couldn't build. He couldn't build a port key. He couldn't, you know. And then so eventually, he's forced to leave his father Bilbo um, with the other dwarfs. And take his butt to Airbor on a broom, and pick an appar- and pick a landing zone for the port key. And once he does that, he can apparate back to where they are, and then they take a port key to um to the mountain. But he had to because you know, there there's a so I had to build in difficulties. I had to create difficulties in his magic because the fact of the matter is is that Harry Potter as magical as he is could take over Middle Earth with very little difficulty I mean it would be like the work of nothing and you know the thing is I think that one of the things because I mean you chatted about some of your processes you were going through this um, is that once you realized you had to build in some obstacles to Harry's magic because it would just be too overwhelming um, what he could do. Um, even once you did that, it 
still, you basically, his magic removes a lot of the obstacles in the story, like you talked about, all the things that allow Thorin to be more open and softer about things. Um, that was a lot of the tension and the obstacles in the story. That was like building to the climax. So you had to build a different, a different, you know, final, you know, a different climactic moment um, than the one you see in the book because, uh, you know, other, you know, it, because you you talked about you've made their journey so much easier that the journey is no longer um, the big obstacle, right? The dragon, you know, and conceivably with magic, even the dragon wouldn't be the big obstacle. So, um, well, the dragon, dragon got, turned out not to be the big obstacle. Um, but one thing I really um, brought back from the Harry Potter fandom is that dragons were difficult to control with magic and it took more than one wizard to do it. And that dragons on earth are basically a tenth of the size of what smog turned out to be smog, whatever, ever how you say it. Um, the dragons on Arda are huge. He's the size of a fucking jumbo jet. Do you know that? Do you realize how big he is? He is like the Hunga- the Hungarian horntail that Harry faces in the original Harry Potter canon, 747. Um, is literally like a fifth of the size of the dragon that was in the Lonely Mountain. He's fucking huge. I mean, he's stunningly huge. (laughs) So that was one issue I thought, okay, even if Harry and Hermione are both there, um, they're not going to be able to subdue this dragon easily. They're not going to be able to kill him easily. Um, But it would be disingenuous for it to be super difficult as well. Because they do have magic that this dragon hasn't been exposed to, so he has no experience with it. And while he can fight it, he isn't fighting it the way he could if he was used to them. If he understood how their their magic worked. If he'd been exposed to it before. If he had built up some kind of immunity to it. He might be able to put up a bigger fight than he did. But he didn't. They were brand new to him. He'd never seen anything like them. He had no idea. Then. Um, what was going to happen. And what they were going to do. But he still managed to put up something of a fight. Uh, the more interesting part. Is that normally when. Somebody other than Bard kills the dragon, it's Keeley or one of the other dwarves. It's it's Thorn sometimes. So I think it really interesting <laughs> yes, you particular did. AU where somebody really unexpected kills the dragon. Um and doesn't even know he's actually the one responsible until later on when the dragon is being um processed they realize who actually killed the dragon. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it was really interesting. So I had to balance how easy magic makes certain situations with the physicality of the dragon and balance that. And I, and I hope that I accomplished it. Um, you did. Um, and I really, you know, I, I thought you did. And you went to a place that was, um, um, you dealt with you, you built in some obstacles to his magic, so everything was an instant, which read read really authentically. And then you crafted, um, you know, a new a new a new. Um, why am I struggling with my words? <laughs> I like where you're going with hard. the final confront. 
with the big confrontation, confrontation with weird comments, there's a different confrontation that is the climax of the story. Um, and I really liked what you did, how you decided the direction you decided to go and how that feeds into your world building and it all kind of flowed together really well. Um, and th- those obstacles that you put into Harry's magic were also um, the, you know, as opposed to um, just from a craft perspective, as opposed to, you know, six pages of exposition about how Harry's at magic is on Arda. Um, we see the obstacles and it explains as he's going through the obstacles of using magic on Arda. I mean, it's, it's better than just dumping six pages of explanation on it. I think that's the best way to, to kind of um, move, like when you're blending two fandoms, like you, like you blend Harry Potter and um, the Hobbit, it, the ripples that you create and the, and the changes that happen can be both big and small. Um, and one of the more, and it's just totally invaded my head canon for both Harry Potter as well, is that I've actually made the goblins on Earth dwarfs. They're dwarfs. Yeah. And yeah. So it's totally invaded Dwaro. It's totally invaded my head canon. I use the term Dwaro in the writing, but dwarfs comes out of my mouth. <laughs> well, what's your hand? Just because your hands are trying to do it doesn't mean your mouth is. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, so it's, and and once I made that decision and I was like, oh, God, that is, that makes, so, that is so fun. That means that there are Dwaro on Arda who are magical. <laughs> I got super excited. <laughs> but this is that this is that thing where it's like when you're starting to contemplate the ripple effect, um, and it, people need to follow that chain. It's like, well, if I do this and then this and then this and then therefore, it isn't that exciting. But the not doing that, that not following what the repercussions would be, in a logical way. Um, is is where you have that like what what I don't understand I don't understand how Harry could have been you know grown up with a really nice family in America and still have been the same kid in first year you know it just it it doesn't gel so right but that's that's it, it's not I mean people seem to think of it I think people will affect as the hard part of changing it. I actually find that the exciting part, and you get somebody to talk it through, talk through what the ripple effect would be, and you that's when you uncover the possibilities. Well, if it goes this way, then this could happen, and if it goes this way, then this could happen, and wow, I'm really excited about the possibility of that. Well, if that happens, then this happens, and that's really fun. That is really It exciting. becomes a matter it's of consequences, it- and sometimes it's difficult for somebody who's really good at at far-reaching those consequences. And I think that's one of my strengths as a writer is that when I make a decision um, in my plot, I can see the consequences of that decision folding out for all of my characters and how that's going to... I can see it in my head. I can see, okay, if I um, have Harry raised in the Shire by Bilbo Baggins, it changes Bilbo and Harry. If Bilbo's already left the Shire repeatedly with his son to go to Rivendell for training... um, being invited on a quest to fight a dragon after his son has gone off to Earth might be kind of attractive. He could be bored. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Once you've raised a wizard, 
desire to get kind of fucking old. And Bilbo's not as fussy because he 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 raised a boy. He, he um um he raised a little boy up, you know, from from um what eighteen months old. So he's he didn't want to put his shoes on. He didn't want to put his shoes on. So he he's gone through um, his house being a mess. His his mother's crockery being broken. There are no doilies, you know, because he grew, he had this boy he was raising in his house. So he's not having, um, he's not quite the same hobbit. But he also is Bilbo Baggins. So there's some things that are, like, like there's a point where Harry tells um, the Dwaro that he'd never seen his father so disheveled. <laughs> So so messed up, so so dirty, so you know his clothes are torn when he comes back from you know the, the troll, and he Harry had just never seen his his father that way before. It was kind of what you do upsetting. What happened? What did he, you do to my? Where are his buttons? Dirty, dirty. <laughs> his clothes are torn. And why is he? <laughs> his <singing>? buttons are missing. <laughs> his hair is a mess. <laughs> what have you done? But so yeah, it's. So it was really interesting to do that. But here's the part about Harry that's really interesting: that um, the Harry that goes back to Earth is um, grew up in a very quaint, very um, somewhat rigid society. I mean, the Shire has is 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 in a lot of ways iso- isolated and is um, as rigid and practical. Yes, it's very practical. But there are social norms that he grew up with, and. <laughs> This is not Harry Potter that's going to be able to sit down at the same table with Ron Weasley. No. <laughs> and, he's, and he's going to find humans horrible. Horrible. Yes, yes. What On the whole, all of completely you? horrible. Rude. Ugly people. Selfish. Oddly selfish, greedy. Although hobbits are kind of greedy. <laughs> well, not all of them, but, all, but most, some of them. But, but mostly for food, right? And, right, you know, right. But being greedy of somebody for their power um, and their influence is probably something he's mostly unfamiliar with. Um, maybe there's a few people in, in the Shire that he encountered that with, but it isn't really a hobbity thing. Um, is coveting power like lazy. that. You can't eat as much as a hobbit does and not be able to like, go get your food and shit. So they're not lazy. They might not be focused physically on the same things that you and I will be focused on, but they're growing their own food. They're hunting for food because they eat seven meals a day. <laughs> That's a lot of work. Right. He's going to find lately? humans lazy. <laughs> He's going to find I mean, humans lazy because he's going to be like, you let magic do what for you? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. Yeah, I see what you mean. I see what you mean. But for a hobbit, you know, honestly, just cooking one meal is 30, 45 minutes out of your day. If you're cooking seven meals a day, plus you're in your garden, you're going to the market, being a hobbit is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> cooking got, one meal yeah, pisses you, me off. You've got, um, what do you've got, uh, if I'm doing the math right, you've got a third to a sixth of your life, a sixth to a third of your life spent in with food. Yeah, one way or another. That's a lot of, that's a lot of attention to food. Um, Hunting, gathering, cooking, eating. 
yeah, probably probably way more than a sixth, but you know, up to a third. Because a third would be um, seven meals a Hiking day. Hiking to the tavern, um, yeah, absolutely. Just drinking all that beer. Yeah. <laughs> it's a hard not life for a hobbit. <laughs> but you know, they have so, a lot so to do to stay fed. Merging them together, both um, the 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 world building and the characters, um, lots of things rippled out, lots of consequences. Um, the fact is, is that Harry is, is greatly, um, was greatly impacted by his time in the Shire. And, um, he does not respond well to, to things he finds intolerable. Cause, cause hobbits don't respond well to that kind of shit. Hobbits are judgmental and, Prone to assumptions. And more violent than you would think. I mean, even Frodo has a, has a story about the neighbors sticking a dog on him. And the dog meant business. <laughs> so this is, they're not as, they're not cuddly, cozy little things. They have very uh, specific, uh, characteristics and situations and and a lot of it I think hobbit society is very rigid you know because even going on an adventure was frowned upon yeah and if you're going free it baby because you need seeds for your garden (laughs) you don't go to breathe because you want to (laughs) you don't leave the shire because you want to you don't have any desire to leave the shire you leave the shire because you have to because you need this or you need that. But then you come back immediately. And if you don't come back, they assume you're dead. And sell off all your stuff. <laughs> and sell all your stuff. That's why they cleaned Bag End out and sold it all. They thought he was dead. Because hobbits don't leave the Shire and not come back in a week or two. Or a year. They really thought he was dead. It, it, it wasn't so much they were stealing his shit, is that they were just settling his affairs. <laughs> because they really thought he was dead. <clears throat> I really enjoy the... Because I like doing the what if. What if this thing changed? Um, if you're doing what ifs and you're figuring out the ripple effect of stuff, um, you... Um, it, it, it's gonna be a hard, it, it's gonna be a hard road if you don't find a way to enjoy figuring out the ripples and enjoy the potential, the possibilities. Um, I we had this thing um, when we did the um, plot drift for Atlant- what, what, I, what I wound up calling Atlantis Codex, um, the story where um, there's the four Shepherd brothers and they have mm-hmm. the genetic key to unlock Atlantis. Mm-hmm. I started that plot drift with an idea that when we started figuring out the consequences of those changes made the initial idea impossible. And that's what (laughs) happens sometimes is you start with an idea for something and you can't just ripple forward from that idea. You have to figure out how you got to that point and what changes would have, would have happened. And, And sometimes your idea then isn't possible. And I think one thing I see people do sometimes is doggedly stick to the idea, even though it doesn't make sense anymore. And sometimes you just got to let go and enjoy the fact that you found the problem and that you can craft something new. 
um, that has similar concepts to it, but maybe not that exact scene or that exact idea. And that's part of, because ripples just don't go forward. If you're starting at a point in canon um, and you've had to change a character in some way to get to that point in canon, you have to figure out the past too. You can't just, it's not just, ripples go in every direction, right? So it's not just figuring out how does it change from here. If you made a change to make that initial event happen, if that character is different, which they'd have to be, otherwise, why isn't it canon? Um, you have to figure out what would have changed to get them to that point. And sometimes that's when it falls apart. It's because you can't connect the dots in the past. And I also think there's a people who, um, and I know I, I get accused of this every time I say this on a podcast. Um, and, you know, my best friend is a panther. And she's a successful panther. She does it very well. Yes, yeah, she is. Um, but I do think um, that a lot of times um, panthers, especially when they're riding in a, a, a heavy AU, um, where they haven't figured out all the consequences and all the ripples, um when they fizzle out and the story never ends and it's just been a work in progress for 10 years, that's what's happened. They've come across a con- consequence they didn't expect and they don't know what to do with it. So they suddenly don't have any more inspiration from the story because they don't know what to do. So when you're, when you have an idea that um, really, really impacts the canon events that you're, that you're up against, you have to make decisions. And I'm not asking you to write a whole out plot, but you need to kind of forward think your consequences. So like, for instance, um, Tony doesn't join NCIS in, in Jilly's story. There are consequences for this. There are consequences that you don't even see as a reader that happened. Um, there, are, there are cases that probably didn't get solved. Because Tony mm-hmm. was the missing piece. Or alternatively, there are cases that were solved that didn't get solved under Tony that were solved because Cassie was there. Dan was there. Because All of people ripples. have different strengths. Yeah. And, and how many cases was... Yeah. How many cases was McGee. How many cases was McGee instrumental in solving that he's not there to solve because he's in a role where he's not being exposed to information in the field that might have helped him come to a conclusion that he's not going to reach because he doesn't have the information. That he didn't observe whatever happened in the field. Um, What happens? You know? How does it ripple out? What are the consequences? Harry isn't raised by the Dursleys. Huge consequences. Huge. That is, that is huge, and that's one of the ones people I see people ignoring the consequences of that so much. Now, I'm usually pretty good about determining. I would say I have my have. I get about eighty percent when I'm in the planning stages, but sometimes um, I would say I get to ninety nine percent though in the writing, and it's that that nineteen percent between the stuff I figured out in the planning and the stuff that doesn't hit me until I'm starting to write it. Like not write the story, but write the scene where that event is important, it's like, shit. And that's sometimes as I'm starting to write, it's like the logic filter in my brain kicks in and goes, with the changes you made, this can't have occurred. And I'm like, oh, okay, 
Oh, now I got to rethink. She just Jeff, and sometimes she just Jeff Goldblumed herself. Yeah, because <laughs> sometimes it that is the way that is when you figure out. As much as you try to figure out everything, sometimes you don't. It doesn't occur to you until you're writing it, until you actually are working through the embodiment of the change. You know, you're working through every word you know, every event of that change. And like you go, oh, no, this can't happen. This doesn't make any sense. And I would say that I, I hit, like I said, about 80% of figuring it out up ahead of time, and I'm in the, around 20%. It's actually about 19% gets figured out right when I hit the scene that's relevant, and then I go, fuck. And then I stop and figure out what the ramifications are of accounting for this change to my plot. And then there's that 1% of the time that I figure it out after it's done. And I just want to like go, Oh, stab no. somebody. I just want to stab somebody. It's terrible. <laughs> Cause like when I was, Cause let's, when yeah. I was working on, when I was working on vicious, um, I knew, I knew going into that story, what Gibbs was going to be like. And I had worked out Tony's backstory but bizarrely, I hadn't accounted for how much it would change him, and the um, which is weird that I worked out Gibbs, but I didn't focus as much on Tony. And it wasn't until I was writing it that I went, "Wow, I've kind of, kind of, a little bit kind of juxtaposed these two, where Gibbs is the one who is softer, and Tony is the one who's harder, because Tony Gibbs never had that tragedy that turned him into a dick, and Tony had." Um, nearly died and um, went through multiple surgeries in order to be able to walk again. So he's got a very different um, that brought him to where he is. So Tony's harder, Gibbs is softer, and I had accounted in my planning for Gibbs, and I had failed to account for Tony's changes. So it caused me to make some, you know, have to stop and make some adjustments. But um, while I get frustrated with that stuff sometimes, I also still really enjoy it because making significant changes and exploring the repercussions of an event is what I really like to do. And that's, that's my favorite thing to do in fan fiction is to change something, even something, sometimes just the tiniest thing and see what it does. Because sometimes the smallest things make the biggest difference. The letter, um, it was sealed with a kiss, right? It had lipstick on the back. Mm-hmm. So Tony assumed it was for him. I can totally mm-hmm. see Stan doing the same thing. Yeah. Or even but McGee. It was, it was, right. Because men That's assume that that, that shit is men. Well, a woman, no. I don't think Ziva or Kate would have opened it. Easily. Yeah. I think they would have opened it out of just pure damn nosiness. But they wouldn't have assumed it was yeah. for them. But Tony assumed it, it was probably, for him. But it had if already passed no... security, so there was no indication that it was going to be um, ugly. I think Kate would have opened it just to tease somebody, who, whoever it was for. She'd been like, oh, well, because <laughs> Kate yeah. was nosy. I think Kate would have opened it. I think even Cassie would have opened it because, you know, there's this, this looks really interesting. I wonder who this is. There's no name on it. I wonder because if this is when he gives was, ex-wives. Get me a letter opener. <laughs> in canon. All up in, in it. Canon, in canon. In the episodes in SWAC, we have that, um, there's that moment of recrimination where you should have given the, the, the letter to me. Tony ripped it out of my hands. 
Um, you should have stopped me. You know, there's that whole little argument that happens about it, which doesn't, it actually kind of, that one little spat in autopsy about what should have been done with the letter put things into fandom of where there should have been some different behavior that occurred around the letter. Um, and in reality, I don't think anybody did anything wrong because it was a vague letter addressed to NCIS that had been through the safety protocols given to federal mail. So it doesn't make sense. It also passed the security into a government building because this is post-Unabomber. There's no way something entered a federal building without an inspection. Right. And they talk about in in the thing, all federal mail is irradiated and inspected. And so they, nobody had any reason to assume whoever's desk that landed on was going to open that letter because it was a generic letter addressed to NCIS, and they probably get hundreds or thousands of those a year. So, but because of that scene that they put in canon where you kind of people are doing that, it is almost human nature to do a blame thing when there's right. been a problem, even if there is no blame to go around. I think people take that really on board as if something was done wrong. And there really was, I don't, from what I can tell, there's really no procedural breach. Um, somebody just outthought um, their procedures. The procedures. So, right. I think, I, I think practically anybody would have opened it. I'd have opened it. I'm like, well, look at this. <laughs> I'm going I'm to see what this is about. Because we're nosy. Yeah. As a species, we're nosy. And it's got a lipstick on it. I'm opening this shit up because it doesn't have a name on it, so I can't get in trouble. I wonder if it gives his ex-wife. <laughs> is one of one of his ex-wives. Is this an anonymous what the, love which letter? Is what the culprit, I think, was talking about, was expecting was, I think the culprit um, would have expected it to be open because of that very reason. Gibbs is very secretive of his um, relationships, and there's an opportunity there. If it's not for me, it's for him. <laughs> Either way, I'm opening this shit up. I want to know. <clears throat> so it, but you, it's. I've read a few stories where people try to fix that Tony opened that letter to make it not be his fault, but I mean, there really isn't anything to fix. Um. Because no one fucked up. Right. Point was that she managed to get that plague letter all the way through a federal building. That means it it went through um, federal mail facilities. It went through federal building security. Right? A Grim Reaper? (laughs) Or a drawing of a golf club? I hate well, to dress her on the back. <laughs> in the first early season, there was that redhead with silver Mercedes that everybody was super curious about and was never explained who she was. So they mm-hmm. set the precedent that people were super curious about Gibbs' love life. Um, and so when the right. teen male shows up with an anonymous letter, I mean, everybody's going to react the way they did. Kate and Tony were fighting over who was going to get to open it. They had no fear of it. Right. Nobody because they no trusted the procedures that had gotten that letter all the way to their desk. You no, know, I don't think it's a mistake either. I think it was um um 
what it was. I mean, that because when you say that it was uh, that they did something wrong, you're also saying the people who accidentally who who opened anthrax letters did something wrong. They didn't do anything wrong. They were doing their job, doing what they were supposed to do, and these letters got to them, um, snuck under the radar. Got to them. And there was nothing that they did wrong. Sometimes you can do everything right and still fail. You can lose. You can do everything right and still lose. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, I do, in terms of the ripple effect thing, coming back to that, if you, we've got the forums over on um Rough trade. Um, mm-hmm. People are pretty responsive about responding to requests for, you know, help figuring stuff out. Um, and you can, if you're, if you don't have anybody you feel like you can bounce it around with, um, you know, especially maybe you're, maybe you're the only person in your group that that is into that fandom, and you need somebody who is, it has a, a little bit more of a canon expertise or something. Um, you can post and say, I, I need help figuring out what the ripple effects would be of this change and what do you guys think and what are the various possibilities. And people will chime in and they'll help. But I will caution you that you need to be prepared for what that means, um, that you may find that your idea doesn't hold up like I did. Um, I I helped somebody more, not, not, through, not through the um, thing, but more, you know, in, in private chat, um, with the ripple effects on an idea. And we talked through the logical consequences before and after of what this, what, how, what, what would have taken to lead to this place and what the logical consequences were. And basically um, the decision, she, she, and, and the person I'm working with couldn't deal with the fact that her idea kind of didn't work, but there were ways to get it close to the idea she wanted, but she just, there's a fundamental flaw in what she wanted to do logically. Um, and it was sort of like her response was basically, well, if I apply logic, I can't write my idea. And um, I was like, well, <laughs> but you, you can, yes, that's true. I mean, she came to that conclusion. If I apply logic, I can't write my idea. I said, true. Um, but that was the point of this discussion was to logically figure out what the consequences were. And your idea doesn't mesh with logic. It doesn't mesh with, you know, with the way things would work. Um, and, her, her her decision was to then disregard any any logic and just go ahead and write the idea. Um, author hand wave of destiny deployed. That is an epic author hand wave of destiny. But Mike, you know, if, if you're not prepared to see flaws and find the flaws in what you want to do and work 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 through them, then there's just kind of not a lot of point in um, you know pulling other people into that exercise. Um, and no one's immune to this. I've had ideas. Um, I have I have notebooks of ideas that I have um, worked through to the point, outlined all my consequences, and then went shit. <laughs> mm-hmm. In fact, I had an epic fail on that level on RT in the middle of a fucking rough trade challenge during Nano. For those of you who have been um, following Rough Trade since the beginning, you will re- may remember that I wrote a werewolf um, ABO AU. I thought in my brain when I when I um, plotted it out, I believed, I deeply believed that I had resolved the consent issues that I have with the Alpha Omega concept. 
I was wrong. And I was, um, right? ABO and me, yeah. Um, I, I, I believe that I, that I had accomplished it. And, but then when I started writing it, I started getting into these scenes and setting up, I realized that I had not accomplished it. And I had made myself deeply uncomfortable. And I have been writing for 30 years. <laughs> that kind of hurt to say. So, what I'm telling you is that no one is immune to to that. Look at that. Look at that face she just did to me. Did you see that shit? I do see it. What? What? You're older than me. Anyways, no, I have been writing since I was a young teenager. Um, but um, what's really interesting about having been writing as long as I have, I still have a lot of my writing from when I was young. And I see the writer I was going to be, even in my really young, terrible, cliched, angsty, tween thick. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I'm like, Look at you. <laughs> it's almost charmingly bad, right? But the, but mm-hmm. there's a there's a little there's a little window in, in, in my fic my fiction. Even back then, um, when I was writing Wesley Crusher fan fiction, once I, I, I found one. There could be more of that. That's the only one I ever found. Um, that I don't remember even writing it, but it was definitely from my typewriter. Uh, <clears throat> that. I see kind of a window into um, who I was going to be as as a writer, and it's really, really interesting. Yeah, I was, but I was also immensely hormonal. And when you're hormonal, you know, it's just like it's <sighs> shit got angsty. Yeah, as much as it could, you know, considering first... how old I was. Yeah, you know, the first book I ever wrote, well. It was sort of a book. I guess it was a book. I guess, I mean, I was 12. I wrote a romance novel. Um, I did, too. (laughs) I wrote a silhouette desire. In fact, I wrote a silhouette desire when I was 13, 14, um, that I could actually shape up and sell. It is so formula. It is so formula down the line. I follow their guidelines like a motherfucker. It was was very much that kind of line, too. It was was sort of a, a... of that kind of vibe, but you know what? If you know what the story featured, you know what the, the the main plot device was, and this is stunning for me how much I've changed. It was amnesia. <laughs> There's like no trope I just like more than amnesia. Yeah, but that was so actually it's really com- popular back then. So that was a really good trend for you to click on. Yeah, I went right with what was trope-tastic back then. Yeah, I, I was like, oh, I'm going to write an amnesia story. And I wrote this this story with amnesia. It's amnesia romance novel. And, and I look back at that now, and I just go, wow. <laughs> well, I didn't want to admit that, but I already did. I admitted it very publicly, too. <laughs> I wrote a secret baby. <laughs> you wrote a secret baby story? I wrote a secret oh. baby. Mine was a secret baby. Yes, it was. Oh, we were both and I'll tell you why. I had read this, this Love Sweat book about a secret baby. And this is what happened in the book. Okay. In the book, this woman was raising her sister's son. And her sister's son, his biological father was an astronaut. And it comes out that 
Sebastian wasn't a secret baby. <laughs> he had been a secret baby in his distant past. <laughs> That's a secret kid. <laughs> but you know, but the, but the secret baby trope isn't like what I did and what might have been. The secret baby trope is the woman keeps the baby a secret on purpose to save the man from from hardship and and oh god. Shut up, lady holder. <laughs> You're hurting my feelings. Anyways, I wrote a secret baby. Um, and um, But in the book that I had read, the, the astronaut finds out about his son um, because uh, he runs – he runs into the younger sister and meets the boy and the boy looks so much like him that, but he doesn't remember ever sleeping with the sister. And he's like, you need to explain what, what happened here. <laughs> and he they finds always out have that, the daddy's eyes, don't they? In those stories and, yeah. and that trope, yeah. and they always have daddy, they got daddy's eyes. It's like, oh, a daddy has some really original eye color. Yeah. No, but this kid looked just like his daddy. It was like blonde hair, blue eyes, a holding. He was all American, so was the dad. And so he finds out that the sister had had the baby and the sister had died. And um, so, so that was my influence. And I, that book sticks out in my brain to this day. And I, Hannah Lowell maybe wrote it. I don't remember. I don't remember. But it was, it was about an astronaut and a secret baby. But yes, I I had written a secret baby. Was that entitled the astronaut and the secret baby? <laughs> it might have been. <laughs> For all I know, <laughs> I'm gonna Google that. Ninety seconds, but I really don't consider Sebastian a secret baby because she didn't run off and hide in the wilderness with him. She just okay, never wait, wait, wait. contacted him. I I googled astronaut and the secret baby and I got a hit. It says long time coming <laughs> by Sandra Brown hide cover astronaut comma secret baby. <laughs> It was on the Love Swept line from that, that that Canadian romance line, Love Swept. I can't tell. But it features an astronaut and a secret baby. <laughs> that could very well be it. I'm, I'm gonna, you can just give me that link and I'll, I'll look and tell you. Okay, we're down to 50 seconds. Um, I may do a podcast tomorrow night. Depends on how I feel. So, second night, Julie. Good night, everyone.